0: Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds, I'm Brian Pierce. The Junkers Ju-87 Stuka was a single-engine, low-wing dive bomber used by the German Luftwaffe before and during World War II. Right off the bat, it is notable that the name Stuka is an abbreviation of the German word Stutzkampfflugzeug, which means dive bomber, making it the definitive example of this type of aircraft. The Stuka was operated by a crew of two, pilot and rear gunner. It first flew in 1935 and although its low speed and lack of maneuverability made it dangerously vulnerable to fighter aircraft as early as the Battle of Britain, it was produced until 1944 and was in service right up until the end of the war. Some warbirds end up symbolizing the war efforts of an entire nation. The RAF, Supermarine Spitfire and Hawker Hurricane immediately come to mind when people think of Britain standing alone following the fall of France and bracing for the German invasion of their island. When Winston Churchill said, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, he was talking about these aircraft. Over in the Pacific Theater, when people think about the rapid expansion and early victories of the Empire of Japan, the Mitsubishi Zero easily comes to mind. The Stuka became a symbol of Nazi aggression and not by accident. It was easily recognizable by its inverted gull wings, fixed and spatted undercarriage, and famous, or infamous, Jericho Trumpet's wailing siren, which was used during ground attacks as a psychological weapon. It was also distinct in its style of attack. This airplane just didn't fly over you to deliver its weapons. It flew over and then dove down right on top of you. It was a major propaganda symbol of Nazi air power during the Blitzkrieg period of 1939 to 1942 and was designed primarily for that kind of war. Quick tactical victories following surprise attacks where air supremacy had been attained. But why dive bombing, which involves the ultra-aggressive maneuver of flying over, then rolling, pointing the aircraft directly at the target, and then releasing the bombs? why not just drop the bombs from level flight when you're over the target? Turns out that level bombing is actually a very difficult thing to do with any accuracy. When the bomb is released from level flight, it initially travels along with the bomber's velocity, however, it immediately begins to slow down due to drag. At the same time, the force of gravity accelerates the bomb downwards, resulting in what is called a pseudo-parabolic trajectory. Solving the problem of when and where to actually release one's bombs is thus a very complicated mathematical problem to work out, especially if this calculation is being performed by the same man who is flying the plane, navigating to and from the target, communicating on the radio, and trying to avoid being shot down by enemy fighters in ground fire. Some method was required to cut down on the workload. A calculating bomb site, such as the American Norden, Or the British Mark 16 was great, but you needed another man to operate it, the Bombardier. Charts or tables that had range and altitude data already calculated were good, but any change in setup would require consulting the charts or tables again. However, dive bombing solves all these problems by eliminating the complicated horizontal component of the equation. The bomber flies overhead, rolls and then dives straight down on top of the target. With nothing left but the vertical component of the attack, the accuracy compared to horizontal bombing increases exponentially. All that is required is for the pilot to point the nose of the aircraft at the target using a very simple sight, dive as long as his nerve would hold, and then release the bombs. Although dive bombing solves many problems, it created others. Dive bombing was first used in an ad hoc fashion by pilots during World War I. The British Royal Flying Corps also experimented and practiced the technique on the bombing range. However, the wood, fabric, and piano wire aircraft of the time were simply too frail to survive the G-forces that were imposed on the aircraft following the release of the bombs during the pullout. An aircraft that was to be dedicated to this type of attack would need to be built to survive its rigors. Hermann Pohlmann had been a bomber pilot for the German Air Force during the First World War. By 1928, Pullman was an aircraft designer at the Junkers Aircraft Company. There, amongst other projects, he worked on an aircraft called the K-47. This was a single-engine, two-seat aircraft with tandem open cockpits, fixed landing gear, and twin tails. It was notable to be the first Junkers aircraft with smooth and not corrugated skin. Although initially designed as civilian aircraft, later the type was renamed the A48 and repackaged as a fighter, incidentally with the rear cockpit being turned into a rear gunner's position. Although about 20 A48s were built and some interest was shown in the type by Russia and Japan, it would not seem a great commercial success. The significant thing about the K47 was that it was used for dive-bombing experiments, and taught Pullman invaluable lessons about building dive bombers. The other major figure associated with the development of the JU 87 was Ernst Udet. Udet had been a fighter ace during World War I, with the second highest number of kills after the Red Baron, who was Udet's commander in the famous flying circus. Following the war, Udet stayed involved in aviation as a barnstormer and stunt pilot. In the 30s, he joined the Nazi Party and became the Director of Research and Development for the resurgent Luftwaffe. In 1933, he had the Luftwaffe purchase two Curtis Hawk II fighter bombers from the United States for evaluation purposes. He was so impressed that he became a major proponent of dive bombers, and even though this attitude was not universal in the Luftwaffe, Udet went straight to Göring with his ideas and in 1935, a request for proposals was sent to the German aviation industry. Pullman had already been working on a proposal at Junkers, based on his knowledge gleaned from designing the K-47. The prototype first flew on September 17, 1935, and was different from the ultimate design in that it had a twin-tail configuration to allow for a better field of fire for the rear gunner, and was powered by a British Rolls-Royce Kestrel engine as the Jumo 210 engine was not yet ready. In January of 1936 the prototype was destroyed in a crash during diving experiments when the tail units failed. A month after this the second prototype was ready, this time with a redesigned and highly reinforced single tail unit and with the now completed Jumo 210 engine. Pullman had always insisted that the aircraft had to be simple and very robust in order to survive the rigors of dive bombing, and so this led to design features such as the fixed and spatted undercarriage. This prototype, plus two other versions, were submitted to the Luftwaffe for evaluation. UDET was involved in the flight testing and initially preferred Henkel's HE-118 for the contract. The HE-118 was less of a dive bomber and more of an attack bomber. It was much more streamlined, with retractable undercarriage and internal bomb bays. However, during flight testing it was discovered that the HE-118 couldn't dive steeper than 50 degrees, making it less suitable for dive bombing. On June 27, 1936, Udet took the HE-118 prototype up to 13,000 feet on a test flight began a dive, and the propeller suddenly feathered, and the aircraft disintegrated. Udet was forced to bail out, and descended safely to the ground by parachute. Following this, his interest turned to the Ju-87. On a side note, although Henkel did not get the contract, they did build 15 HE-118s, two of which were given by the German government to Japan, where they became inspiration for the Yokosuka- D-4Y Judy carrier dive bomber. In late 1937, JU-87As were sent to Spain to fight with the Condor Legion for flight testing under wartime conditions. The results were favorable and lessons learned went into the first production models, the B variants. The B variant had the larger Jumo 211 engine installed, which developed almost double the power It also saw the installation of the infamous Jericho Trumpets, which were propeller-driven sirens mounted either on the leading edge of the wing or on the landing gear fairing. Although they robbed the aircraft of 10 to 20 miles per hour through drag, the sirens produced the characteristic scream of the Stuka and must have been highly intimidating to the enemy on the ground. The B model dispensed with the trousered landing gear and featured now the more recognizable wheel spats. The Stuka's basic design made it well suited to combat conditions. It featured detachable hatches and removable coverings to make maintenance easier, and the fact that the large airframe sections could be wholly interchanged increased the speed of repair. One of the aircraft's most distinguishing features was its gull, or cranked, wing design. The wing's center section featured anhedral, meaning the wing slopes down, while the outer section displayed dihedral, the wing slopes up. This allowed for a shortened undercarriage length and improved the pilot's ground visibility. We'll see this trick used again in a later episode with another aircraft, the Vought 4U Corsair. As for armament, the pilot could fire two 7.92mm machine guns mounted in each wing. The rear gunner operated a 7.92mm MG15 machine gun for defense. The center-mounted bomb was fitted on a crutch, which would swing the bomb out and away from the propeller arc before releasing it. The usual bomb load was a single 1,102-pound bomb, however, over shorter distances, the Stuka could also carry four 110-pound bombs under the wings as well. 250-liter, 66-gallon, fuel tanks were located in each wing, and fuel was supplied to the engine via electric pump. If the electric pump failed, fuel could also be supplied with a hand pump. So, what was it like to attack a target with a Stuka? First, approaching the target at around 15,000 feet, the cockpit visibility was excellent, with the glazed canopy coming all the way down to the pilot's elbow level. There was a bomb sight window in the floor to allow the pilot to see straight down at the ground below. Locating the target, the pilot would then begin initiating a list of 10 actions that had to be performed before the dive commenced. This list included moving a dive lever to the rear, which limited the travel of the control column, setting trim tabs, retarding the throttle, and closing the cowl flaps to avoid shock cooling the engine. The dive brakes were set, which automatically set up the dive. The Stuka would dive at between 60 to 90 degrees, and there were red markings painted on the cockpit wall to indicate the different dive angles. All the pilot had to do was line these up with the horizon to achieve the desired dive angle. Dive speed would be limited to between 350 to 370 miles per hour due to the dive brakes. The pilot would use ailerons to line the aircraft up with a target. All reports state that unlike many aircraft, including other dive bombers, the Stuka felt rock steady and at home in a vertical dive. It was truly in its element. A light on the contact altimeter would come on at the bomb release point, which was usually set to permit terrain clearance of 1,500 feet the pilot would release the bomb and depress a knob on the control column to initiate the automatic pull-out mechanism which would recover the aircraft even if the pilot passed out due to the six G's that would be experienced. Once level flight was reattained The dive brakes would be retracted, propeller and throttle set to climb, and the coolant flaps opened to prevent overheating. It is also interesting to imagine the experience of the rear gunner basically lying on his back looking at the sky during the attack and then swinging down to be able to see the results of his pilot's aiming. The stresses on the pilot during the pullout were considerable. During high G-force maneuvers, blood runs out of the brain and into the lower extremities of the body. Most pilots would suffer at least grey-out, which they would call seeing stars. During this time, they would be conscious, but blind. Sustained G-forces would lead to blacking out, which would only end with the cessation of the G-forces. Once the B-series went into production in 1937, all earlier A-models were transferred to training units. Experience in the Spanish Civil War had shown that the A-models were underpowered and couldn't even carry a full bomb load unless the rear gunner was left back at base. Once production was ramped up, Junkers was producing 60 B-models per month and at the outbreak of World War II, the Luftwaffe had over 330 Stukas on hand. At 4.26 in the morning on the 31st of August 1939, three Stukas made the first bombing attack of the Second World War, striking bridges over the Vistula River. During the Polish campaign, the Stuka performed admirably, destroying naval and air targets and ruthlessly attacking infantry with fragmentation bombs that caused appalling casualties and led to demoralization and eventual surrender. As with most successful warbirds, the demands of combat led to extensive experimentation with multiple variants of the Ju-87. There was a tropical version with sand filters and skis could be fitted for operation on snow. The Ju-87C variant was a navalized version which was intended as both a dive and torpedo bomber. It featured a tail hook, folding wings, and other changes for seaboard use, however, The Graf Zeppelin aircraft carrier was never completed to allow its deployment. Although the Ju-87 was always intended as a short-range tactical weapon, the Ju-87R was an extended-range version with provisions for drop tanks and arrived in time for use in the Norwegian campaign. The Norwegian destroyer Ager, the French destroyer Bisson, and the British destroyer Afridi were all sunk by Stukas. The Stukas were highly successful in destroying all types of ground targets, including buildings, emplacements, bridges, and were also used in anti-shipping attacks, most notable at Dunkirk, where many Allied ships were sunk. Many other experiments were tried with the Ju-87, including designing an extra-large cargo pod that could be carried on the bomb crutch and could be used to transport vital material. One of the oddest test programs involved the addition of overwing passenger pods which were mounted on the wings right beside the fuselage. Imagine a longish egg-shaped pod with forward and side windows. Two men could sit tandem in each and the whole thing could be released in flight and would descend to the ground via parachutes. The idea was to be able to drop agents behind enemy lines. Although there is no record of an actual passenger drop occurring, The pods were flown with passengers. Although I can't find any pictures of this, you can find pictures of man carrying pods for other aircraft, including the American P-38 Lightning. The JU-87Bs had great success up until the Battle of Britain, however, without air supremacy losses became prohibitive. Due to its low speed and the low altitude at which it operated, it was just too vulnerable to fighter attacks. During six weeks of operation, over 20% of Stuka's strength was lost, leading to their withdrawal from attacks in Britain. In the Mediterranean, due to Italian defeats in Greece and North Africa, the Luftwaffe deployed two Gruppen, which would be about 80 aircraft, to Sicily. On the 10th of January 1941, one of their first assignments was an attack on the British aircraft carrier HMS Illustrious. Although the ship suffered multiple hits and near misses, she managed to limp back to Malta. When the war expanded into Yugoslavia, the Luftwaffe committed about 300 Stukas to the campaign. The campaign was ideal for the Stuka. There was minimal resistance in the air, and so the Stukas were able to pound ground forces, anti-aircraft positions, and airfields. Back in Greece, Stukas were continuing to inflict severe damage on shipping. British naval forces in the region were hindering German activities on Crete by cutting off reinforcements. Stukas were sent in, and during the resulting battles, at least seven Royal Navy ships were sunk or severely damaged. This was the apex of the Stukas' career in the Mediterranean. In North Africa, Stukas supported Rommel's Afrika Korps for his two year campaign. In 1942, as Allied air power grew in strength, the Stuka's weaknesses began to show again, and they were lost in more and more significant numbers. It began to be evident that the purpose-built dive bomber was losing out to the more flexible fighter bomber. Fighter bombers might not be as ideal for bombing as the Stuka was, but they could fight back against air opposition, or at the very least, they had the speed to make a run for safety when jumped. On the 11th of November, 1942, 15 Stukas were shot down in one day by American P-40 Warhawks. From this point on, Stukas only operated in pairs, often jettisoning their ordnance and turning back at the first sign of trouble. Their air cover was even stripped away as fuel stocks curtailed the activities of German fighters. Recognizing that the Stuka had lost its edge, the Luftwaffe looked for a replacement, but without anything suitable coming down the pipe, It was forced to continue to update the JU-87 design. The result was the D variant. They experimented with using a Deilmer-Benz engine, however, it didn't develop the power of the Jumo-211 and so it was removed. On the other hand, the Jumo-211J engine was ready, which developed even more power and allowed for more payload. This payload was taken up by increased armor, increased fuel load, and bomb capacity. Visibility was improved with a more aerodynamic cockpit. One way to distinguish the D model is due to the lack of the distinctive coolant radiator scoop of earlier models. The big radiator was replaced by two coolant radiators that were located beneath the wings. The D model was given more firepower for the rear gunner with the installation of a dual-barreled 7.92mm machine gun with a high rate of fire. This was to try to improve the Stuka's defensive weak zone, the tail. Although it looked as though the Stuka was finished as an attack aircraft in World War II, it was about to receive a major reprieve with Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. The invasion, which opened with a massive air attack that nearly completely destroyed the Soviet Air Force, would again create the perfect hunting ground for the Stukas. Stukas raked havoc on Soviet forces during the campaign, destroyed Soviet armor, strongpoints, breaking up infantry formations, and attacking Soviet shipping and naval forces. When it became clear that hunting Russian tanks was now a priority for the Luftwaffe, there was discussion as to whether the Stuka D model should be replaced or redesigned. It was decided to keep the basic design But to make improvements for the low level ground attack role, and the result was named the G model, which was the final operational version of the Stuka. Even greater armor protection was added to protect the crew from ground fire. One interesting feature of the G model was the removal of the dive brakes. The Stuka's raison d'etre had been dive bombing, and the dive brakes had been an integral part of the airframe for that purpose. Now the Stuka wouldn't even have this feature. Instead, under each wing was mounted a 37mm, 1.4-inch cannon pod. Each gun carried 6 armor armored-piercing tungsten carbide cord rounds. The nickname for this type of Stuka was Cannon Vogel, or Cannon Bird. Interestingly enough, the G model would be an inspiration for the much later tank-killing American A-10 Thunderbolt II, also known as affectionately, as the Warthog. In the first days of Barbarossa, the Luftwaffe destroyed multiple thousands of Soviet aircraft and assured air supremacy. With this air supremacy, the Stukas were free to do their worst, knocking out hundreds of vehicles and trains. Perhaps the high watermark of the Stukas in Russia was the Battle of Stalingrad, where Stukas flew thousands of sorties against Russian forces. These aircraft were able to do horrific damage from above, but neither they nor the Wehrmacht forces were able to stop the Russians. From the Battle of Stalingrad onwards, as the Russian Air Force rebuilt its strength, Stuka losses increased. In 1943, Stukas were heavily used during Operation Citadel, also known as the Battle of Kursk. Although the Stukas did great damage to Russian tank formations, And were credited with saving two German armies from being encircled, they required increasing numbers of Luftwaffe fighters to protect them from the over 3,000 Russian fighter aircraft that were now available to hunt them. Great numbers of Stukas were lost, as well as the experienced German aces who flew them. Following Kursk, with Stuka strength down to 50% and lower, many Stuka units were converted over to Focke-Wulf 190 aircraft. Although the heyday of the Stuka was over, it continued to be operated in small numbers, right up until the end of the war and the Battle of Berlin. No account of the Stuka could truly be complete without the story of Hans Ulrich Rudel, the consummate Stuka ace. Although survival in flying, and especially in flying in combat, is certainly a combination of skill and luck. There are times when you read stories of certain wartime pilots and wonder just how much luck one man could possibly have to have survived through so much. Rudel's first piece of luck was that he became a Stuka pilot at all. He was born in 1916 in Silesia. His father was a clergyman, and it was said that little Hans was so fearful that he had to hold his mother's hand during thunderstorms. During his schooling, he was not noted to be particularly smart, and he was more interested in sports. It was perhaps this sporting nature that encouraged Rudel to join the Luftwaffe as an officer cadet in 1936. Although he did pass his courses and qualified as a pilot, again, no one seemed to think that he was anything special. In fact, when Rudel applied for dive-bombing school, he was rejected multiple times. His instructors thought that being an air reconnaissance observer was more at his level. So during the invasion of Poland, Rudel, who one day would be one of the Reich's highest decorated pilots, wasn't flying as a pilot at all, but as an observer, basically acting as an extra pair of eyes for the actual pilot. Finally, in March 1940, Rudell's repeated applications to the prestigious dive-bombing school finally paid off and he attended the course. When he was finally posted to a Stuka wing, he was kept out of the action by poor training reports, essentially his report cards, written by his instructor that stated that he was a strange chap whose only outside interests appeared to be sport. He doesn't smoke, drinks only milk, and has no girlfriends. I recently read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, and it seems as if Rudel was suffering from what Gladwell calls mismatching. Rudel just didn't seem to act in a matter that his supervisors thought a hotshot pilot should, so they assumed that he was a dud. So, during the invasions of France and the Low Countries, Rudel was kept grounded, and when his unit was flying in support of the airborne invasion of Crete, He was ordered to stay out of the dangerous areas, where he couldn't cause trouble for himself or others. It was only after the invasion of Russia that Rudel was finally able to get into serious action and shine. His fitness reports sounded different now. A few weeks into Barbarossa, Rudel's squadron leader wrote, Rudel is the best man in my squadron, but he is a crazy fellow who isn't likely to live very long. Wrong again. Rudel would go on to fly an insane and grueling number of missions, racking up kills of all kinds, from knocking out a battleship, sinking a cruiser, to destroying many landing craft and artillery emplacements, to killing over 500 tanks. At one point in the Russian campaign, he landed his Stuka in a field in order to attempt to pick up another Stuka crew that had been forced down. As soon as he landed, the downed two-man crew jumped in the back of Rudel's plane with his rear gunner. Rudel gunned his machine throttle and tried to take off, but the famous Russian Rasputzia, or mud, was holding the Stuka fast to the ground. With a group of Russian soldiers quickly approaching, Rudel and his comrades were forced to abandon the aircraft and run off cross-country to hide in thorn bushes. In order to escape, they had to leave behind their boots and swim the Deneister River, which was 600 meters wide at that point, and so cold that the downed airmen had to swim around blocks of floating ice. One of the three didn't make it and drowned. When Rudel finally reached German lines, he was in such bad shape that the sentries didn't believe his story of who he was. He had to show them his medals in order to prove himself. By the war's end, he had risen to the rank of Oberst, or Colonel, and had earned the Knight's Cross. Of the Iron Cross with golden oak leaves, swords and diamonds, which was the highest German decoration for bravery possible. He was shot down six times and wounded several times. At one point he was shot in the thigh, but that didn't stop him from flying. He was back in the cockpit flying with a plaster cast within days. Three months later his Stuka was hit by AA fire and his lower right leg was shattered. He still managed to limp his aircraft behind the German lines where he was picked up and brought to a field hospital where doctors were forced to amputate his leg below the knee. He was fitted with an artificial leg and amazingly returned to flying at his squadron a month later. On May 8, 1945, Rudel took his last flight in the JU-87 when he lifted off from an airfield near Prague to land in U.S. occupied territory to surrender. understandably did not want to be captured by the country that at one time had placed a bounty of 100,000 rubles on his head. Finally, it's interesting to note that his biography was required reading for the team who designed the Fairchild Republic A10 Thunderbolt 2. Rudel died in 1982 at the age of 66. There are several static examples of surviving Stukas. A JU-87G is in the Royal Air Force Museum in London. In 1967, this aircraft was modified for use in the filming of the Battle of Britain movie and there were even plans to get it flying again for the movie. They were able to get the engine started, however, it was ultimately decided that it would be too costly to get the aircraft fully airworthy. There is another on display at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. This Stuka, a 1941 Junkers Ju-87R-2, tropical version, was shot down in North Africa, specifically in Libya, and was captured by the British, who later donated the machine to the Chicago Museum. Sadly, so far neither of these Stukas are airworthy. What would it be like to see one of these terrifying aircraft airborne and performing simulated dive bombing again? It seems our only hope right now is the JU-87R-4 being restored by the Flying Heritage and Combat Armour Museum in Everett, Washington. They began their restoration in 2013, and obviously this is a mammoth effort to complete. I know I'm looking forward to seeing and hearing this Stuka airborne again.